Well, this morning we are going to be uh, looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. So go ahead and turn there. Uh, we're still early in this series through the book of Acts. I'm very much looking forward to the text today. Um, there are many things that we can and should find hope and assurance uh, from in this text. Uh, it addresses the ascension of Jesus, which is an incredibly significant and yet so often overlooked point in redemptive history. And so let's read the text and work through it. If you're able to stand, go ahead and stand and follow along as I read Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers." pray. Father, thank you for your word. We love you, Lord, and we are so grateful that we can come together in this place to look at your word and to seek to hear from you. We pray that you'd help us in these things, Lord. Help us to know the truth, help us to love the truth, and help us to walk in the truth. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Verse 6 begins, so when they had come together, they asked, or excuse me, verse 9, goodness, um, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, this is an incredible scene. You think about what's happening here. Jesus has just given his followers his last words before leaving, reminding them of some things, giving them an agenda, they're to wait in Jerusalem, where they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then, after they have been empowered by the coming of the Spirit, they're to go and be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And after He tells them this, He ascends, it says. It says, they were looking on and He was lifted up. Now, certainly that means Jesus literally begins to ascend upward. We don't know how far. It's not that he was just going and going and going and going and going up into the sky and as far as they could possibly see until finally he disappeared and, and they wouldn't have needed a telescope or binoculars or something to see him. No, he's lifted up and a cloud, it says, took him out of their sight. He is taken into heaven, which is God's place or God's space. We don't know where that is. It's not up past the moon and stars somewhere. 
all of the heavens, the galaxies were created by God. And the cloud that takes him out of their sight is a sign of God's presence, a sign of God's glory. Maybe you remember uh, in, in um, Exodus where the people were led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Or the cloud that filled the temple when, when God's presence was there. Or the cloud that covered the mountain when Moses met with God on the top of the mountain. Or the cloud that covered the mountain when the three, Peter, James, and John, ascended the mountain with Jesus and he was transfigured before their eyes and a cloud descended upon them. Well, that is God's presence. It's God's glory. And it's incredibly significant. The ascension of Jesus means something. Jesus, just as he was raised back to life in bodily form, ascends into heaven in bodily form. The ascension vindicates God's Son who has accomplished his mission of redemption. And it also reveals that Jesus is the world's true king. Paul writes about this in Philippians 2, beginning with verse 6. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Augustine wrote, Christ did not take human form for a time, to show himself to be a man in this guise and an outward appearance that should thereafter be discarded. He took the visible form of a man into the unity of his person, the form of God remaining invisible. Not only was he born in that form of a human mother, but he also grew up in it. He ate and drank and slept and was put to death in that form. In the same human form, he rose again and ascended into heaven. He now sits at the right hand of the Father in that same human form in which he is to come to judge the living and the dead. It's wonderful. Christ Jesus ascended alive and in bodily form before these disciples. It's a glorious moment. And also the ascension reveals to us that Jesus is the great intercessor. He is our mediator before God. We need this. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, writes, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then in chapter 4 of Hebrews, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This Jesus, risen from the dead, ascends before them and is at the right hand of the Father, mediating for you and for me. So Jesus ascends before them, and it says in verse uh, 10, verses 10 and 11, and while they were gazing into heaven... As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They're gazing into heaven, into the sky, and that makes total sense. Where did he go? How much of this gazing must have been just awe. And there, as they gaze, they're given divine encouragement. First, you have these two men, these angels that appear, and they say to them, why are you standing there looking into heaven? They know what their mission is. This happens immediately after Jesus has said to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They know their mission. They know their agenda. So why are you standing there looking into heaven? And then what do these angels say? He's coming back in the same way that you just saw him leave He's coming back. The angels assure the disciples that Jesus' ascension is a guarantee that he will come back, that he will return in the same way that he was taken up into heaven. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So Jesus left physically and visibly in a cloud with power and great glory, and we're promised that he will come again physically and visibly in a cloud with power and great glory. Jesus' return is a certainty. We know that from Jesus' own words and the words of these angels here in Acts chapter 1. Verse 12 goes on. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near 
Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. They went to Jerusalem where Jesus had told them it was going to all start. It says a Sabbath day journey away. That, that means about the distance that you could travel on the Sabbath. The Jews interpreted the Sabbath law that was given in Exodus 16 to mean that on the Sabbath, they were allowed to travel on foot no more than 2,000 cubits, which is about 3,600 feet. This was added to the law, right? This is, these are fences that the Pharisees put around the actual law. But it goes on in verses 13 and 14. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In the upper room, they gather together. It lists the apostles. There's 11 apostles now because Judas betrayed Jesus. But also it says Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there, and the women and Jesus' brothers. That's, that's possibly brothers and sisters. Your Bible probably has a note uh, that you can look at the bottom there that tells you that the word translated Brothers can also be brothers and sisters. It's, it's a word that refers to siblings in a family. We don't know whether Jesus had sisters or not, but his siblings were there with them. And what women does Luke refer to? This is a common theme for Luke. Luke repeatedly mentions the women who were a part of Jesus' disciples and who were a part of his ministry, women like Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James and John, Salome, Joanna, Susanna. As we consider again briefly our series, How We Got the Bible, and the understanding that often we're getting one strand of the story, I want to read you this from New Testament scholar Scott McKnight. He says this, We might need to pause long enough to observe that this small community in Jerusalem at the upper room where they celebrated the Last Supper in Luke 22 was not the entirety of the Jesus movement. There were various groups between Jerusalem and Galilee, and we learn in this book of Acts of some who were following John the Baptist's way, way out in the diaspora. We see then Luke's intent to tell one kind of the story, the one from Jerusalem to Rome, and the story that focuses on a mission that flows from Jesus' instructions in that 40-day window to the apostles, end quote. So we have this happening in Jerusalem, but just as we talked about at the beginning of this book, Luke is saying that he's giving an account, but there's much that we don't have an account of. There's other writings that he mentions even, even that we don't have an account of. But here are these apostles, the 11 and the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his siblings, and what does it say that they're doing? Devoting themselves to prayer with one accord. 
They're all united together in prayer. It says they devoted themselves to it. They're constantly praying together. And so I want to spend the remainder of our time considering the contrast between the response to the ascension, which we can see here, and the response to the crucifixion. Because it's significant. And so I want to start considering the response to the crucifixion. And these are likely all the same people that are mentioned here in our text today. And there are several things we could mention, and most of these will be from Luke's account. I'm going to mention a few from John's gospel. But some of the responses to the crucifixion. In the crucifixion, they saw Jesus die. They watched him die. And the first response to that is Joseph of Arimathea, who's a part of the council or the Sanhedrin. But had begun to follow Jesus. And Luke 23, verses 50 through 53, tell us that he donated a tomb. He takes Jesus' body physically down off of the cross and wraps his dead body in a uh, cloth and places his dead body in the tomb that he's donated for it. Next, we, we find that women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed as Joseph of Arimathea is taking the body and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and it says that they returned and prepared spices and ointments for what? To prepare his dead body. Luke 24 tells us in verse 1 that on Sunday, the women take the spices to prepare his dead body. What they find is that the stone is rolled away. And so they go and tell the 11. But what we find there is that these 11 have hidden themselves. They're hiding. And when the women come to tell them that the tomb is empty, Luke says that these words seem to them an idle tale. Fiction. Just a story. We know from Luke 24 that two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus and they're discussing the events surrounding the crucifixion and they're doubting. And when talking to the risen Lord who they didn't know is actually Him, they they actually say to Him, we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. The disciples themselves were doubtful and even startled and frightened when Jesus first appeared to them. Luke 24, verses 39 through 43, tells us that even after seeing Jesus, they still didn't believe. They doubted. John tells us that Mary stood weeping outside the tomb assuming someone had stolen Jesus' body. The first assumption is not he was right. He's alive. 
The first assumption is someone has stolen his body because he's dead. John also writes that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. These disciples are fearful and doubting. And all of these responses that we find to the crucifixion, even overflowing into the hours after Jesus had risen from the dead, even after they've seen him, denote sorrow and grief and mourning and disbelief. The responses to the crucifixion are responses of sorrow, responses of grief and sadness and loss and doubt and mourning, and that makes total sense. They saw him die, and we know from the accounts about those going to the tomb or wrapping his body and placing it in the tomb, they saw him dead. So those are responses that we have of the crucifixion, but what are the responses that we know of to the ascension? And why is this important? The reason this is important is because both of these situations, both of these circumstances are accounts of Christ leaving the disciples. In the crucifixion, he dies. In the ascension, he leaves them to go to the Father. So what are the responses to him leaving this way? In the cru crucifixion, they saw him die, but in the ascension, they saw him rise, glorified. They watched him go up and then surrounded by the cloud of God's glory, his very real presence had taken away from them. Luke tells us in our text today that one of, of the responses we know about is that they assembled together and devoted themselves to prayer in one accord. They're together, not locked, hiding from others. Together, gathering and devoting themselves to praying and praying and praying and praying. Not only that, but Luke gives us an account in his gospel in Luke 24, verses 50 through 53. It says this, and he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The disciples worshipped Jesus after he ascended. Before they even go back to Jerusalem and gather devotedly in the upper room praying, they worshiped Jesus after he left them. It's a wonderful picture for us. Also, on a practical note, we see in our text in Acts a remarkable change in them following his ascension. In Luke's writing, Whenever there's a vision or a visitation by an angel to humans, including the disciples, even when it's Jesus coming to them on the water and they think it's a ghost, 
Anytime there's an appearance of a heavenly being, there is always fear. They're startled. They're afraid. Even in the upper room after the resurrection, when Jesus appears to them, they're startled. But here, after his ascension, they not only worship, but when two angels appear right next to them, weren't standing there before, are standing there now. We're not told anything about them being afraid, just that they worship and they go to Jerusalem in obedience and they pray and they pray and they pray. In contrast to the crucifixion, there's no record of sorrow, grief, or mourning at the ascension of Jesus. All we're told is that they worshipped Him and devoted themselves to prayer. I want us to consider this contrast as we come to a close in the text today. Because here's the truth. We should be ascension Christians. We should be Christians who are not caught up with or led astray by kingdoms of this world, separating ourselves from the whole body of Christ, being divided, sorrowful, filled with grief, hiding ourselves, doubting. We should be ascension Christians. Those whose eyes are gazing, not upward, just hoping that He would make Himself visible, but who have fixed our gaze, fixing it away from a focus that is not Jesus and toward kingdoms that are not His and fixing it on Christ, worshiping Christ, being united with other believers, all other believers, and devoting ourselves to prayer and remembering the agenda that He had given to these apostles a kingdom agenda that, that displays the kingdom qualities of the true and better kingdom of Christ. We know from the text today that Jesus' return is a certainty. He's coming back. In the same way that He left, He's coming back. And so let's unite ourselves around the King who is coming again doing the work, the gracious, merciful, benevolent kingdom of God work that He's called us to do. One of our values is gospel centrality. It says this, as a church, we center our lives around our King and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's the creator, sustainer, and Lord over all creation. In our worship gatherings, we're committed to gospel-centered preaching, to singing and praise that reflects our delight in Christ, and to regular participation in the Lord's Supper as an active reminder and proclamation of our belief in the good news of Jesus. Both corporately and as individuals, we de delight in the Word of God, prayer, and striving towards complete surrender to Jesus in every area of our lives. This is who we desire to be as a church. The ascension of Jesus gives us hope to that end. And we ought to be ascension Christians in how we live it out. The elders were blessed this week to attend the Gospel Coalition Conference in Indianapolis. It was a joy um, conference focused on the book of 
Exodus hope in the wilderness. One of the speakers was speaking on Exodus 24. I want to read you part of the account from that text. Exodus 24, 9 through 11, it says this, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Can you even imagine that? God calls these men up onto the mountain, 74 of them up there. And they saw God. It's amazing. What's, a most, what's most amazing to me is what it says they did. It says in verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. They feasted with God on the mountain. Now, we can get caught up in that and marvel, and rightly so. It is marvelous. But we cannot miss the significance of the ascension and the Lord's Supper. Christ ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He is there, present on our behalf. God in the flesh, doing what? Mediating for us. And that God has invited us into His presence to eat and drink with Him. We might, we might say to that, well, that's different. I mean, these, these 74 were literally up on the mountain in the glory cloud, eating and drinking and beholding God. But listen, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And that word that we translate to participation in 1 Corinthians is translated in fellowship in what we're going to read in Acts chapter 2. It's the same word, fellowship. The cup of blessing that we bless, isn't it, isn't it a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, isn't it a fellowship, the body of Christ? And so you're going to be dismissed and come and receive the bread and the cup and go back to your seats. We're going to sing together. As we do that, let's consider our gaze as people who are invited to eat and drink with the King. Let's fix our gaze on Jesus, the gracious, merciful, benevolent King who pleads for you before the Father and invites each of us to come to Him through His body and blood, His sacrifice for our sins. The things that have kept us from Him have been overcome through His body and His blood. And Jesus says, remember that. Each and every time you take the bread and the cup, remember my sacrifice for you.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're so good to us, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We ask that you'd help us. We want to be ascension people. People who, who have our gaze fixed on you. People who worship you for who you are and what you have done. People who delight in, in devoting ourselves united with the body of Christ in prayer. God, help us, help us, that that would be our desire, that that would be who we really are or who we are becoming. And be glorified, Lord, in us and through us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.